the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy April 19th, 2021. As the Castro family finally, finally, at long last, recedes from official power, it's worth taking a moment to think about Cuba and the Castros and America. Let's start with Marcel Philippe in today's Wall Street Journal. He writes the following. Raul Castro announced his resignation as the chief of Cuba's Communist Party on Friday. Many U.S. media outlets characterized the move as the end of an era of communist rule on the Caribbean island. This is false. For many years, Cuba has not really operated as a communist or socialist state. Instead, it has been ruled by a military dictatorship that concentrates its power within a cartel-like chain of command of hardline Castro family members and loyalists and generals who fiercely shield their wealth and status as well as each other. Many analysts are focused on whether Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel will inherit Mr. Castro's leadership position as party secretary, which, on paper at least, is the highest office in the land. But this is a distraction, as is Mr. Diaz-Canel, who was installed by Mr. Castro in 2018 as part of a faux transition of power. In Cuba, the Castro family leads with an iron fist, and the party and government follow suit. Even the Communist Party's online motto, Somos Continuidad, we are continuity, implies the regime is determined not to change. Some 75% of the Cuban economy, including hotels, construction companies, shipping companies, hard currency transmitters, and currency exchanges, is owned by a member of the Castro family. And you can add trafficking cocaine from Venezuela as well. But wait! Wasn't Cuba supposed to open up and normalize with the great and heroic work of Barack Obama and the help of Republican Senator Jeff Flake? Well, let's go to Freedom House, the nonprofit bipartisan country ratings organization founded by Eleanor Roosevelt. It says this about Cuba today, some seven years after the great work of Obama and Flake. Quote, Cuba is a one-party communist state that outlaws political pluralism suppresses dissent and severely restricts basic civil liberties. The government continues to dominate the economy despite recent reforms that permit some private sector activity. The regime's undemocratic character has not changed despite new leadership in 2018 and a process of diplomatic normalization with Washington, which has stalled in recent years, close quote. There were those at the time who said to the likes of Obama and Flake, if Cuba wants to have normalized relationship with with the United States, there is a simple rule, there is a simple recipe, be normal. Obama and Flake lectured us that the U.S. giving in to Cuba would help normalize them. It didn't, because as Raul Castro himself bragged, he beat Obama. It was quite precious to think about all this in the context of Jeff Flake's book, titled deliberately and directly after Barry Goldwater's famous book, The Conscience of a Conservative. 
For in that book, Flake not only writes of the success of his policies in opening up Cuba, he condemns conservatives who support Donald Trump because he, according to Flake, quote, heaps praise on dictators, close quote. Like the most classic and ossified of them all, Senator Flake, the Castros? Oh, of course not. That was you, I said sarcastically. And to no good end. The Cubans may be less free now than before, and you certainly helped bail out the government. Er, sorry, actually, you helped bail out the dictatorship. It's of a special interest to me, too, because no matter who the Republicans, no matter who the conservative, from about 1959 onward, every single one of them, Republicans and conservatives, supported doing everything possible to help the immiserated of Cuba by eliminating the rule of the Castros, by bankrupting them, if possible. Every single conservative. Here's Barry Goldwater, for example, in the original, the authentic conscience of a conservative, quote, if the Red Army had landed in Havana, we would have come to Cuba's aid. Cuba's, Castro's forces, however, were native Cubans. As a result, a pro-communist regime has become entrenched on our very doorstep through the technique of internal subversion. And so it will always be with an enemy that lays even more emphasis on political warfare than on military warfare. And so it will be until we learn to meet the enemy on his own grounds, close quote. And yet, here we have this great Politico headline from 2014, quote, Obama's Republican ally on Cuba, close quote, all about Jeff Flake. And just three days ago, Flake again justified his work in Cuba. It's great work, if you like a hardened dictatorship with more oppression than before and a signaling of surrender to those who believe in the democratic aspirations that you say you stand for. It's a dictatorship you preserved financially, Mr. F Mr. Flake, by throwing it a life preserver once the USSR and Venezuela crapped out. Why has this been so on my mind? Well, Raul, Raul Castro's announcement, for one, but also the wariness of seeing too many in the vice grip of a dictatorship given too much hope by a dunderheaded State Department or series of experts in the media, only to have that hope dashed by A, reality, and B, ignorance. I've seen it with Gaza and the West Bank. Yasser Arafat is long gone, and his quote-unquote people are more miserable than before, with even less democracy and human rights in half the territory they control. I've seen it with the nascent green revolution in Iran, where everyone, it seemed, outside of the Ayatollahs and the Obama administration, everyone thought there was a unique and organic movement of liberalization in Iran coming from the youth, the students, the kind we'd been hoping for for years. Of course, that was summarily crushed in its infancy because the United States sided with the malocracy and not the students. Is it that we're soft on tyranny or soft on democracy? In all honesty, I think it's the latter, and for a number of reasons, including first and foremost, the doubt within and amongst and about ourselves. Clearly, a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself, Jean-Francois Ravel wrote in How Democracies Perish. 
Anything that seems to impose or even suggest our system is better than an indigenous system, no matter how undemocratically it may have arisen. Anything that makes the United States look as if we have it right or gasp or even the model must be dumped or memory hold. How can we have people in Hong Kong marching to the Star Spangled Banner after all when Americans choose to sit it out or sit on it? Don't those Hong Kong people realize they're singing something drenched in a racist ethos and history? Do remember what the memory hole is for, to change history and erase civilization. Milan Kundera put it thus, the first step in liquidating a people is to erase its memory, destroy its books, its culture, its history, then have somebody write new books, manufacture a new culture, invent a new history. Before long, the nation will begin to forget what it is and what it was, close quote. You've heard me on this before a lot. But what does it have to do, you may ask, with Cuba or Jeff Flake or Barack Obama or democracy? It has to do with ideology and what Barry Goldwater called political warfare. The other side uses it. We do not. The other party uses it. We do not. Goldwater wrote of it this way, quote, the mission, their mission is not cultural but political. Their aim is not to inform but to mislead. Their assignment is not to convey a true image of socialism but a false image. Socialists' hope is that they will persuade the American people to forget the ugly aspects of socialist life and the danger that the socialist system poses to American freedom. It is a mistake to measure the success of this communist operation by the extent to which it converts Americans to socialism. By that test, of course, the operation is almost a complete failure, but the socialist aim is not to make Americans approve of socialism much as they would like that. It is to make us tolerant of socialism. I replace socialism in that Barry Goldwater line for the word Soviet, and those words could be written about the enemy today in China or even our political opponents here in America. The aim is not to make Americans approve of socialism, much as they would like that. It is to make us tolerant of it. Now talk to me about China, or for that matter, yes, still here, Cuba. We understood our ideology once, and we understood theirs once. Ronald Reagan's first important and maybe most well-known public speech involved condemning Castro and Cuba and praising America for helping try to save Cubans. We were once confident of who we were, and people didn't blink at the notion of better dead than red, which Reagan himself still used in his speeches during his presidency. On a day celebrating Cuban resistance in 1983, Ronald Reagan said this in a speech, quote, The Soviet Union, with all its military might, with its massive subsidy of the Cuban economy, can't make the system produce anything but repression and terror. It reminds me of the story, Reagan said, I happen to collect these stories, that the Soviet people are telling each other, the Russian people. It indicates their cynicism with their own system. This is the story of a commissar who visited one of their collective farms, and he stopped the first farmer, workman that he met, and he asked about life on the farm, and the man said, it's wonderful. I've never heard anyone complain about anything since I've been here. And the commissar said then, well, what about the crops? Oh, he said, the crops are wonderful. What about the potatoes? Oi, sir, he said, the potatoes. There are so many that if we put them in one pile, they would touch the foot of God. And the commissar said, well, just a minute. 
in the Soviet Union, there is no God. And the farmer said, well, there are no potatoes either. Reagan would get laughs with those kinds of stories. Cuban-Americans understand, he went on to say, however, perhaps better than many of their fellow citizens, that freedom is not just the heritage of the people of the United States. It is the birthright of the people of this hemisphere. We in the Americas are descended from hardy souls, he would go on to say, pioneers, men and women with the courage to leave the familiar and start fresh in this new world. We are, by and large, people who share the same fundamental values of God, family, work, freedom democracy and justice. Perhaps the greatest tie between us can be seen in the incredible number of cathedrals and churches found throughout the hemisphere. Our forefathers took the worship of God seriously. Reagan went on to say socialism seeks to impose a philosophy that is alien to everything which we believe and goes against our birthright. It's a philosophy that holds truth and liberty in contempt and is a self-declared enemy of the worship of God. Wherever put into practice, it has brought repression and human deprivation. There is no clearer example of this than Cuba. And it is all those things the left despises here now as well. Truth, liberty, religious freedom, and everything else Reagan mentioned. Hardy souls, pioneers, men and women with the courage to leave their familiar and start fresh. God, family, work, freedom, democracy, Justice. That's what the left, left hates. That's what the left despises. People are tired of not having them. Are we? The answer to that question is the answer to whether or not America will survive, not half slave or half free or half blue and half red, but whether we will survive, not as a house divided, but as a house. I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. I hope you had a good weekend. That's the phone number if you want to get in on the conversation. Bill, you had a good weekend, I trust. Did you do anything interesting or see any good movies? Any bad ones? No, no movies two weekends in a row for you. Yeah, it is. It's good. You're reading a lot and running a lot. It's going to be a busy week, and it's going to be an exhausting week intellectually, and we better pull up our socks and get ready for it. It's calling on us to provide some common sense to what you know is going to be much too much of the narrative, particularly out of Minneapolis as the trial of Derek Chauvin uh, in the, um, and for the killing of George Floyd winds down. The uh, prosecution and defense gave their closing arguments today, and the judge read a uh, charge to the jury, instructions to the jury. There was an interesting part in what he read about implicit bias, which I will return to. I want to dissect that with you folks in a little bit. <clears throat> but let's understand a couple things, uh, first of all, uh, right now. Um, I, I think, I hope it doesn't happen, I hope I'm wrong, but I think there is going to be rioting in Minneapolis, regardless of what specific charges Chauvin is found guilty or not guilty of. I know I'm not alone in that. The National Guard thinks so, too. The National Guard is standing by in Minneapolis, bracing for the riots uh, when the jury uh, returns its verdict later this week. Paul, uh, excuse me, John Hinderocker reports. Minneapolis resembles a fortress, 
he says. Both Scott and I have questioned whether Chauvin can possibly get a fair trial in the current atmosphere. Jurors cannot fail to understand the consequences of a not guilty verdict, can they? In walks Maxine Waters last night after curfew, so breaking curfew, not really the worst thing she did, and she talks all about this uh, on the streets of um, on the streets of Brooklyn Center, uh, talking about how the jury has to uh, has to find him guilty and guilty of murder. She said. Um, She went on to say, I'm going to fight with all of the people who stand for justice. We've got to get justice in this country, and we cannot allow these killings to continue. We've got to stay on the street. We've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know we mean business. We are, but we, and I hope we're going to get a verdict that will say guilty, guilty, guilty. And if we don't, we cannot go away think that's jury intimidation the jury is not isolated and black out they can you know watch whatever they want they have not been sequestered nancy pelosi by the way has defended maxine waters comments you think maxine waters is going to be censured i'll tell you who took her comments seriously though the judge judge cahill in the case he told the defense that um maxine waters statements may have given the defense an appealable issue that Maxine Waters may have given the defense an appeal, an appeal to toss out the case. Um, Charlie Kirk asks, Maxine Waters uses her platform as a Democratic congresswoman to threaten juries and incite violence. Why does she still have access to her Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook accounts? She's clearly a threat to keeping, she's clearly a threat to inciting violence. What happened to public safety? What Maxine Waters said is 20 or more times more incendiary than what Donald Trump said on January 6th. He said march peacefully. You didn't see anything about peace in her, in her, in her uh, statements from last night. You heard about if we don't get the verdict we want, guilty, 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 we cannot go away. You got, we've got to stay on the street and we've got to get more active. We've got to get more confrontational. We've got to make sure that they know that we mean business. This in a city that is burnt needs more confrontation. She's not exactly releasing white doves here. Now, as I said, I think there will be violence regardless of what the verdict is. I hope I'm wrong, but I think there will be, and obviously law enforcement thinks there will be, and the city is bracing for it. So the question I want to ask is, Will more people be killed than on January 6th? And the answer is already they have been. Over 20 people have been killed in George Floyd protests. Now that brings an interesting question up about January 6th because we just got the medical examiner report on Officer Capitol Hill Officer, Capitol Police Officer Brian Sitnik. Died of natural causes. It wasn't bear spray. It wasn't a contusion to the head from a fire extinguisher. He stroked out the next day, and obviously, obviously, our best thoughts and prayers for survivors, family, and friends of his, but he wasn't killed by a violent insurrection. And the one woman who was literally killed by a weapon was killed by a Capitol Police officer whose name we will never know because the police have buried that. 
Just imagine if she weren't white. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 after the hour brings us our culture and economy update with John Dombrowski. He of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. And he has a show right here on 960 every Saturday morning at 7 a.m. The Word on Wealth. Happy Monday, John Dombrowski. Howdy. How's it going, Seth? I'm doing fine. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. Market's off just a little bit, it looks like. Yeah, it took so a little pause today, the market, but a... that's ex- that's expected with all of the gains we've been seeing over the past few weeks. A couple things I want to run by you. I want sure. to talk to you about inflation, but before okay. I do that, mm-hmm. kind of a story I didn't see you picking up on for some reason. It did. It really interested you, and it's <laughs> this ex-Schwab client. Right. who was arrested for refusing to return $1.2 million transferred by mistake. What's going on here, John? Well, this former 911 dispatcher was charged with theft, bank fraud, and illegal transmission of monetary funds. This was according to this report. And what basically happened was there was a glitch where um, there must have been a Charles Schwab account, and $1.2 million inadvertently got deposited into the account. Now, what this person did, rather than reporting it, they took money from the account and moved it over to another firm, Fidelity. And then from there, they took that money and spent it and did some things, apparently maybe bought a house and some other things with the money. Uh, now, when Charles Schwab came looking for it, she was uh, not taking their calls and did everything she could to avoid them. Ultimately, Charles Schwab went ahead and uh, reported this to the police and also to the uh, financial regulatory um the order, which is uh, FINRA, and now there's a situation where she's been arrested and is going to be charged with these uh, charges, and we'll see what happens. But, you know, I think about this, Seth. What if you woke up one day and you looked in your bank account and there was an extra $50,000 in there? Yeah. You know, obviously, it's not your money. You know that. For you then to think, okay, I'll just take the money, move it to another bank, or go spend it, and, of course, no one will ever be the wiser. That is probably not the case. Uh, and it would be illegal for you to do that, just as it would be as if your $50,000 was taken from your bank. Uh, you would report that, and the bank would do everything in their power to make sure that you, if you were defrauded in some way, that you would get that money back. So uh, I would just encourage people out there, if this does happen to you, um, don't don't think that it's just your money or don't do something silly with the money. Um, report it and call the uh, institution and let them know that this error has occurred. And maybe, who knows, maybe they'll be giving you a reward for it. I don't know. But uh, don't do not do something. You don't like want to You don't want to live with this hanging over your head. Uh, first of all, uh, you know, you or I and most of us would probably have some kind of guilt over it. Of if course. We say something that would yeah. be always uh, checking over our shoulder or something. But the other thing is, you're right, when you point out that it's not just um, it's not just $50,000 that came from nowhere that now all of a sudden – with the wave of a wand is yours. It came from somewhere. Somewhere else. And that somewhere else is someone else. That's right. That's someone (laughs) else's $50,000. So uh, just as uh, you wouldn't want to lose it, uh, think about what it means to um, have reaped it uh, wrongfully. Exactly right. right. Exactly right. In this case, it was $1.2 million. Yeah. In this case, it was a little (laughs) more than $50,000. She has to give the money back. Yes. She is responsible to give that money back. It's not hers. Yes. She has to give the money back. Um, We can extrapolate from that lesson about 
Oh, other things too, John. But mm-hmm. um, one of the one of the other things that is on the mind of uh, a lot of conservatives now. I'm reading more and more about this. Is given spending, given uh, the consumer price index, given the rise in gas prices um, and groceries, inflation. Really, the concern of inflation is is coming back again. It is, and there's no question about it. We as consumers are feeling it, Seth, in everything that we do, whether it's food, whether it's um, commodities such as building building supplies. We're seeing labor increasing, uh, just about anything out there, gas prices. And we're feeling this uh, in our wallets, uh, even though the Fed uh, is stating basically that they haven't reached their inflationary uh, numbers that they're trying to accomplish. And not only are they trying to reach those numbers, but they're trying to see some stability with those numbers so that they're not going to be either overshooting or undershooting those. Um, and ultimately, though, we as consumers are feeling it right now. And with the with the amount of money that has been spent by this government and with the pent-up demand uh, to get back to normal, obviously we're going to start to see inflation. Yeah. There's no question. Yeah, we've got to work on those measures, anti-inflationary. Yes. Thank you, John Dombrowski. You bet. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Finrin Sippican, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Check out our website, grandcanyonplanning.com. Thanks, There's that Finner. That's the same group uh, investigating uh, guess investigating the uh, Finra, Charles yeah. Schwab uh, yeah. employee. Mm-hmm. Finner. Yep, Finner. That's it. Thank you, John Dombrowski. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you, sir. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. That's Don Williams, right, doing the original, later covered by, uh, what's his name, Alan? What's his name? I'll think of it in a moment. Anyway, Tim is in Phoenix. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Hey, Seth. Thanks. Seth, it seems to me that what's missing in our national dialogue right now is the mission of resisting arrest. Uh, you and I could look at a lot of these videos and conclude that's resisting arrest. Whereas many blacks, I'm not sure if it's a majority or not, can look at these videos and say, no, it's not. So let's define it nationally. So from here on out, we know what it is and what it is and what it happens. And also, once we define it, let people know that if you resist arrest, you may get shot. You know, that seems to be missing from our national uh, dialogue, whether it's a politician or, or you know, somebody in the mass media. Let's define resisting arrest. So we know from here on out what it is. You almost you almost have to you almost have to wonder, Tim, if we did as much advertising. Uh, let me ask you to turn your radio down in the background if you have it on. It sounds like you might. If we did as much uh, public affairs advertising, pub- public relations advertising, and public information uh, as we did uh, on on resisting arrest, as we did with wearing a mask and how to wear a mask. We might have a little less violence in this country. We might. But you're absolutely right, Tim, to point out that 
I think what we have with almost all of these cases, almost all of them, is a resisting arrest problem. There's a few exceptions, but at least the major ones we can think of, exceptions being perhaps Breonna Taylor, they are resisting arrest problems, and maybe that's not even an exception. Of course they are. And I saw the governor, Tim Waltz of Minnesota, today get up and say something I think highly irresponsible. He said, we're going to be engaging in systemic reforms, regardless of the outcome of this trial. And we're going to be engaging in these systemic reforms through a vast agreement in the community on things that need to be done. And it seems to me we can agree on a few things. And the first thing he said we can agree on is you shouldn't get shot for being pulled over in a traffic stop. And I thought, boy, is that an irresponsible thing to say. It, it, if if people are resisting arrest, particularly young African-American males, I tried to make this point last week. If they're resisting arrest, there is a percentage of them. Let me make sure I'm understood clearly in what I'm about to say. There is a percentage of them that have been instructed their whole lives that that is the sane thing to do. It has been drummed into them that cops are out to kill them. If that is drummed into you for 20 years or 18 years, what percentage of them do you think think that when a cop is trying to pull them over or arrest them? And what would you do if someone was trying to pull pull you over or arrest you who had the intent of killing you? That's what they've been told. They have been lied to. And these lies have cost lives. But it is a resisting arrest problem. There's no question about that in almost all of these cases. And to say, well, it's just because you were pulled over, that's not exactly the story here. That's not exactly the story. A mistake obviously did take place, a deadly and lethal one. And it took but 24 hours for that policeman to be off the force, policewoman, for making that mistake. And now she's being charged. Took less than a week for her to be charged. That's how you deal with mistakes. Grossly negligent, lethal mistakes. But also, too, maybe you don't resist an arrest when you're being arrested on outstanding warrants for first-degree aggravated robbery. That is to say weapons charges in the commission of a robbery in which violence was used against a woman. Maybe if that warrant didn't exist for his arrest, the conflict wouldn't have taken place. Maybe, just maybe. Not maybe, just maybe. Of course it wouldn't have. Of course it wouldn't have. You can be pulled over in this country You can be pulled over in this country of any race and have a perfectly reasonable, if not perhaps somewhat, sometimes a little maddening experience. Do you know how many police calls were made in New York City the last year we have data available for 2018? 6.1 million calls. 6.1. In all of those calls, there was a total of 35 police shooting incidents. Okay? 
6.1 million calls, 35 shootings. Of those 35 incidents, six involved police suicide or attempted suicide, and four involved animals. So we are talking about barely one-tenth of a percent of shooting incidents or 99.9% of police calls in which no shots are ever fired by the police. This from a piece by Peter King in The Hill today. It's not exactly a shooting gallery out there. Not with 350 million police interactions with civilians every year. No. No. There is not a systemic problem of being killed because you were being pulled over on a traffic violation or because of the color of your skin. There is but no question. There is but no question that George Floyd and Dante Wright and Michael Brown and others would be alive but for the resisting of arrest. That's just a truth that suffuses this whole maddening debate. And it's maddening because we know people are telling lies and forced to agree with lies they don't believe in. Because they know the police. They depend on the police. They have family members who are the police. And they know the chances of an innocent person getting killed by a policeman are far less than a policeman getting killed in the line of his or her duty on any given day. On any given day. And that's why we are so angry right now. We are angry that a good institution is being brought low by a bad culture. That's what we're angry about. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Rich is in Scottsdale. Hello, Rich. Hi. Good afternoon. Love your show. Thank you. Um, you know, we need to give police the benefit of the doubt in most cases because they're making split-second decisions. I've been involved in one where somebody pulls a gun, and... You have, you know, seconds to decide if you're going to get shot or you're going to shoot back. And the police, 99.99, they don't want to hurt anybody. When I get pulled over by a cop, I shut my car off. I put roll down my windows. I turn my dome light on. I put my keys on my roof. And I keep my hands on the steering wheel. And it's yes or no, sir. They they have anxiety coming up to a car, and they got tinted windows. They don't know who's in it. And most of these guys that are resisting arrest already had problems with the law. They've already been in trouble. They've already been arrested. They know what's coming, and they do stupid things like try to run away or try to get away or 
grab a gun, a gun, grab a weapon, grab a, a weapon yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. You know, if the people involved in these um, stops would use their head and not be trained, like you said, for 20 years, that a cop's trying to kill you. I mean, it's absurd. The whole idea of it is absurd. And, and these bureaucrats sit back and think they can dictate this or that, and they've never been in a situation like that. It's not not going to happen. They should all have to go through some kind of video watching people that try to get trained that either shoot the wrong guy or get shot themselves. The police aren't there to take a bullet and then fire back. That's not the way it goes. And they're making split-second decisions, and most of them are good people that are helping people, car accident victims, children. I mean, the whole thing that the police are bad, the whole narrative is just so wrong. That's really well said, Rich. I appreciate it. Uh, Did I pick up, you said you were involved in an interaction. Did I pick up that you were law enforcement yourself or you were on the other side of it? I was robbed. You know, I got to tell you, thanks for that, Rich. I got to tell you, um, thanks for your call, too. It was dawning on me when you were outlining the scenario of when a policeman needs to make a split-second decision to draw their weapon against someone else with a weapon. You know, it's important, and we recognized this when we saw the story of the car with Wendy's. Uh, where was that? I think in Florida. So Florida or Georgia? It doesn't matter. Um, fleeing the scene. Um Someone who's pulling a gun on a cop, the cop isn't just responding to save his own life. He's responding to save the lives of people afterwards if he fails. If he fails. There is a war in this world between criminals and civilians. There's only one institution between us that can stop it. 